0: It's the Farmer to Farmer Podcast, episode 127. And this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Brendan Grant raises six acres of vegetables, plus laying hens, highland cattle, and 100 acres of hay with his wife, Marcel Pollen at Sleepy G Farm, just east of Thunder Bay, Ontario, on the north shore of Lake Superior. One of my favorite places. It's so beautiful up there. The only certified organic farm for 500 miles around in Canada. Sleepy G's produce is marketed through a 150-member CSA, grocery stores, a farmer's market, and a small on-farm store. Brendan shares his techniques for bringing new land into production and delves into the ins and outs of tillage and mechanical weed control on raised beds. We also dig into marketing in Thunder Bay, which is an isolated city about eight hours from any other metropolitan areas with no history of market farming, as well as the impact of their isolation and their extreme climate on production and input choices. We also discuss how the farm survived a serious accident two years ago, the impact that accident had on the farm and on Brendan, and how they managed their way through the crisis. We also discuss the pieces that Brendan and Marcel had in place that helped the farm survive. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Coolbot by Store It Cold. You can build an affordable walk in cooler powered by a Coolbot. And a window air conditioning unit. Save up to 83% on upfront costs and up to 42% on monthly electrical bills compared to conventional cooling systems. And by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. And by BCS America, BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSAmerica.com. Brendan Grant, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast.
1: Thanks, Chris. I'm really excited to be here. I kind of feel like a minor league baseball player that just got his major league call-up. So I'm a big fan and... It's a pretty big deal. Like, where do you go to from here? <laughs>
0: oh. Thank you. Oh. Uh, okay. So now I'm blushing. So, okay. I'm, we're, so I'm going to throw the ball back to you here and say, let's, let's get started by just having you tell us about sleepy G farm, where you guys are located and what you're doing there and, and how you're selling what you're doing.
1: All right. So um, our farm is uh, just outside of Thunder Bay, Ontario. And Thunder Bay is right at the head of Lake Superior, I think at about 48.3 degrees north. We're 45 minutes north of the Minnesota border, right up on Lake Superior. So Thunder Bay is a city of 110,000, and it's very much a city in the middle of nowhere. From Thunder Bay, it's eight hours to the next city center. So we are very much an island in the middle of uh, the north.
0: Right. Because going south isn't an option for you guys because you run into the border.
1: Right. And even there, you're in northern Minnesota, which is kind of the hinterland. And, you know, the the next population center down there would be Duluth at, uh, I think, 80,000. And that would be uh, about a five hour drive direct south from from our farm. So, yeah, we are very much Thunder Bay is very much uh, a city in the middle of the bush. And our farm is out on the Sibley Peninsula. And the Sibley Peninsula is this giant uh, landmass that juts into Lake Superior and actually creates Thunder Bay, the body of water. And about 90% of the peninsula is a protected a protected uh, provincial park it's called Sleeping Giant Provincial Park. And that park is about 70,000 acres. And so we've actually kind of named the farm. You know, we we used to refer to the park as Sleepy G, and we're literally on the doorstep of Sleepy G Park. And so, yeah, so we farm on a peninsula that is 10 kilometers wide at the base. So that's about seven miles or so. And so that means that we're five kilometers uh, either way east and west would put us into uh, Lake Superior.
0: So, do you get a bit of a lake effect out of that?
1: Yeah. So our springs are later. You know, in a nutshell, our springs are later because Lake Superior is cold. Uh, even in the summer, it's cold. But uh, so relative to the rest of the area, our spring is probably 10 or 14 days later. However, at the other end of the season, we tend to we generally benefit from um, a little bit of a moderating effect that the, the lake creates. So especially on those August and September days where it's nice and sunny and warm, but then the sun drops below the horizon and things get real frigid real quick, uh, the lake, the surface of Lake Superior will radiate the day's heat and uh, very often will mitigate, you know, we won't get our first frost um, until, you know, into October when maybe other farms in the area have already had three or four by that point. So it's uh, it's a foe in the spring, but a friend in the fall as a general rule.
0: You're actually not the furthest north farm that we've interviewed because we talked a few weeks ago to Jason Weston out in at Joe's Garden in Bellingham, Washington, which is like two tenths of a degree north of Thunder Bay. OK, but your climate is a lot more severe up there in general.
1: It is, you know, you know, if you open the page in your agricultural textbook and you look at, at, you know, the zone classification map, we're basically right where you're supposed to not be able to grow anything. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're zone 2B officially. Um if you're if you're lucky enough to have a little bit of a microclimate, you might you might claim to brag to your friends that you're in zone 3A. But, you know, we're firmly in 2B. Our local seed saver uh group, you know, their their motto is, you know, 2B or not 2B <laughs> and, you know, cuz they're always trying to push the limits of what's possible in in this area. But, you know, that said, we grow pretty well everything. You know, we grow sweet corn and squash and melons. Uh, you know, f- curbits will we'll use the help of black plastic. But, you know, most, most crops are doable. We can't grow sweet potatoes. And, um, you know, we can't and don't really want to grow okra. So, or loofah. <laughs> we tried growing loofah sponge and it just didn't work. <laughs>
0: <So>. <laughs> I guess food sovereignty is one thing and, and loofah sovereignty is another, right?
1: Totally. Totally. It's, uh, it's somewhat inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. So I don't feel, I don't feel particularly disadvantaged despite the fact that we, uh, you know, officially shouldn't be able to grow much here, but we do. And I should mention that, you know, the Thunder Bay region is, produ- is dominated by, uh, dairy production. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of cows we milk, uh, in the area around Thunder Bay. And so forage crops do well, you know, um, You know they're growing soybeans up here and corn silage and some of those more uh, modern forages, but there's not a lot of vegetable production up here. Uh, Thunder Bay just doesn't have a strong history of market farming, and so that that's actually been part of the difficulty in accessing equipment for our operation is that there just isn't that old Alice G sitting in someone's um, you know hedgerow. There just isn't that small scale you know, uh you know, cultivator or discs or whatever you might be looking for. So it's been difficult getting equipment for that reason.
0: So just to go back and, and make sure that we're touching on the on the pertinent details of your farm, how many acres of vegetables do you guys have?
1: Okay, so the the farm's 160 acres or quarter section. Okay. About 90 of that's bush. Um the rest is our hay and grazing land. We have eight acres cultivated, and six of which would be in vegetables at any given year. Um, We also have a flock of 100 laying hens that we maintain year-round, and we raise our replacements for that. We have a small herd of about 25 shorthorn and highland cattle, and that's growing each year. Um, I harvest about 100-plus acres of hay across three different properties around uh, the farm and we have another 100 acres of grazing land on another farm that we manage down the road. We run a 150 member CSA uh, that runs for 13 weeks starting in the beginning of July and finishing in the beginning of October. We attend one farmers market, but we only attend that market from September 1st until Christmas. And we we work with two small independent grocery stores and we're the only certified organic farm for 800 kilometers or 500 miles. And we employ three full-time staff from the beginning of May until the beginning of November.
0: So you're the only certified organic farm. Does that include all of the, all of the other dairy farms and, and all of that you guys are it for your area?
1: Yeah, unfortunately we are. And you know, it's nice to be able to say you're the only whatever of anything, but it really is not something we're real happy about uh, because you know, we don't have the organic infrastructure here. Uh, we don't have opportunities to collaborate. Uh, we don't have uh, access to feed and inputs on, you know, that we could we could benefit from bulk buying, for instance. You know, and if for our herd of cattle, for instance, you know, we buy straw uh, to bed the cows in the winter. And, you know, I would love to have certified organic straw, but they just it's just not. Here, it's not even anywhere close to here. I would literally have to drive 10 hours from this farm uh, into Manitoba, the next province over to access certified organic straw.
0: So you guys are certified organic for the vegetables, but not for the livestock.
1: That's right. Yeah. So our layer ration that we feed is not uh, certified organic. So our eggs are, you know, for all intents and purposes, conventional. Um, And our beef, we're trying to move that way. And there's two, there's three obstacles to certify the beef. Uh, the first being to get us off grain altogether, uh, which we've made steps towards by making silage bales and just kind of weaning ourselves off of uh, um, malt sprouts and crushed corn is what we've been using as a supplement for lactating and gestating cows. So that's an easy one to solve. The straw bedding is a bit more difficult one. That would involve us either producing our own grain uh, or switching to a different type of bedding, like sawdust or something of the like. Uh, and then the third obstacle would be, because we don't have a certified organic processing facility, we have just one abattoir or slaughterhouse in the region, we would have to get them to slaughter our animals first on each kill day before anything else. And that poses a significant problem because you know, they're a small facility, they process about 30 head uh, per week. And I know that they always start with uh, with hogs. So each day they want to start with the hogs and they they finish with steers. So that that would be a challenge, you know, and none of these problems are um, not like you couldn't overcome them, but they are a challenge. There's something that we really would have to put a lot of work towards overcoming.
0: So I've been to Thunder Bay a couple of times and and taught some classes up there. Um, in fact, I think that's that's where you and I first met was was when I came up there probably four or five years ago now. And yeah. you know, there was a there were a lot of people showing up for classes about vegetable farming and about even about organic vegetable farming. So it's it's interesting to me that you guys are the only certified organic farm up there. Is that something that the market is not demanding, or is it is it just something that there's there's resistance to among the growers?
1: It's both. Uh the market you know, people of Thunder Bay and the uh, farmer's market goers are just so enthusiastic to have anything that's growing local that, you know, whether you're certified or your claim to be organic or natural or even conventional, you know, they just want it. It's fresh, it's local. And most importantly, it's produced in Thunder Bay, which, you know, you touched on the idea of food sovereignty. You know, people in Thunder Bay are fiercely proud of Thunder Bay because guess what? Like we're all we have, you know, we got to take care of each other because we are this you know, this island city in the bush. So the market's not demanding the certified organic. Uh, some of the other growers uh, use or follow organic practices, and uh, but haven't taken the step to certify. And you know, even for the first few years of our farm and our marketing, we didn't certify. In fact, even in our logo, uh, the slogan is ecologically raised food, and we chose that because. We really wanted to stimulate conversation with our customers about what does ecologically raised even mean? And that would be my segue into the way that we grow food organically, quote unquote, organically is, is, uh, you know, it's ecological. That was the founding principle of the organic movement was, you know, ecological stewardship. So but uh, since that time, we've decided that um, as leaders in this community, as organic leaders, that we really ought to put our money where our mouths are. And certify and, you know, take the extra cost, uh, you know, undertake the extra burden and administrative and record keeping. Uh, and we're strong components of the organic movement. And, you know, I have to say that Marcel and I really uh, strengthened our resolve as organic farmers after our first trip down to the Moses Organic Conference. You know, sitting in a room among, you know, 3,500 other organic farmers and, and just being overwhelmed with the sense of, community and the movement, it really made us come home and say, you know what? I don't care what it costs. I don't care what it takes. We're going to certify because it's the right thing to do. And that's just the right thing for us.
0: And how much does that cost a year? I'll put it to you this way. The certifier that flies up
1: from Southern Ontario, which is a thousand miles away, um, or 800 kilometers would be the next closest farm. They lose money on us, you know, because they come up, I think our, our, it costs about just under a thousand dollars a year for us to be certified. And uh, in addition to, you know, the other costs of having certified organic feed and, and that type of thing. Um, but I have to say that, you know, we're better farmers for having done it. You know, our record keeping was always good, but now it's really good. And I actually like having someone look over my shoulder. You know, I, I kind of look forward to the organic inspection each summer because it's like, you know, it's a bit of an affirmation that we're on the right track, but I, I just like having that check and balance and that control. And, you know, it's really easy to think that you're doing a great job of something if there's no one there to tell you otherwise. And so I just felt like me saying that we were organic or ecologically raised food or whatever it was in, in the past was just me talking and they were just words, but having that stamp, you know, having that third party, I feel, adds a lot of legitimacy to what we do.
0: Just to to kind of turn here a little bit more towards the the actual production that you're doing, you said you've got about eight acres that you're cultivating. Is any of that under plastic? Are you doing hoop houses and high tunnels and all that? Or is are you guys growing pretty strictly outdoors?
1: Mostly outdoors. We have 200 by 24 foot unheated hoop houses and a 20, a 50 by 30 um, double-walled propagating greenhouse. So, a little bit of cover. Uh, we don't use a lot of mulch. Um, I never wanted to get into the routine of putting down black plastic mulch and then tearing it up at the end of the season and having to bring that to the landfill or use a biodegradable, which you know was previously permitted in the organic system in Canada, but now is not, or at least most of those products are not. Um, because we don't have Our soil is not biologically active for a long enough period each calendar year that you could be real sure that that biotello or like product would would be gone by the following season. So instead, we uh, in the beginning, I got the idea to buy a big sheet of black plastic silage tarp and we uh, plant all of our cucurbits on that. Um we lay we have two blocks of this. We have actually about half acre under these black tarps that we grow our squash melons um cucumbers zucchini, that type of thing, and we put drip lines under that uh we you know we fold those up and and move them around the farm each year and that silage plastic was a great tool for us to help establish new growing areas as we grew the farm you know i would fo- I would plow in the fall. And then that spring I would cover with this black plastic tarp, which is, you know, two hundred feet by fifty feet. And the first year I could get a crop and it would be a squash crop. And then we would really deliver a devastating blow to a lot of those perennial weeds as well as a sod that was still breaking down. And the following year, then we could go into a different crop and that plastic would move on to, you know, pave the way for the for the expansion of the farm. So so currently we have two two hundred by fifty foot sections of black plastic that we use within our rotation
0: yeah it's interesting to me that you that you wouldn't go in for the black plastic I mean I I see where you come from on the ecological perspective on that but just dealing with growing in zone 2b I would think that black plastic would be the first tool that you would look to
1: yeah I'm yeah not everything we do makes sense Chris (laughs) (laughs) but uh, I mean hell it would have been a lot easier to go get a job in town too so we didn't do that Actually, we did, but then we quit those jobs. Um, you know, another product we use we use a paper mulch product called Weed Guard uh, that comes from a, a mill in Colorado, I believe. And we've been using that for a lot of years. It comes on uh, a rolls of 500 feet. They're four feet wide. They are compatible. The paper mulch is compatible with mechanical mulch layers, and we use that paper mulch for a lot of Nebraska crops uh, and. You know, kale, for instance, which is a full season crop. We use it for our chard. We used to use a lot for head lettuce. But we do use that paper mulch um, for weed suppression on some of those full season crops. But we've been using a little less of it the last few years. It's, um, what's nice about the paper mulch product is that it will completely and totally break down by the end of the season. Sometimes a little too soon. but um, And it doesn't provide the soil warming, that black plastic wood, but it, it does do the soil moisture retention and and weed suppression that you're looking for.
0: You said earlier that you guys weren't using the biodegradable mulches. what I and I guess i'm I'm confused what's the difference between those two the the two products when you talk about like the biotello versus versus just a paper mulch?
1: The biotello and the paper are both biodegradable, but you know the biotello is going to give you the soil warming and the paper mulch won't. Uh, but for our certifier in Canada here uh, as of last year, Bio, I think biotello was not permitted because there's an ingredient in there that I think is derived from a GMO. So, you know, we've just not gone down that road. Um, yeah. And for right or for wrong, but we haven't gone down the road of mulching all of our beds. And what we have done instead is we've just said, well, you know, our climate doesn't really want to grow those crops anyway. So why don't we focus more on the things that we're better suited to, which are root vegetables? And you know, and we do grow all of our squash or winter and summer squash. And most years they're pretty good. Some years are awesome, but a lot of years they're crappy. And uh but our root vegetables are pretty consistent and you know, so we've really focused heavily on the root vegetables in those fall storage crops.
0: And are you guys using raised bed production? We are. Yeah. And that I think was
1: that was a very intentional decision. Uh, we have cool, wet springs. And so raising raising the soil helps drain out drain the soil and it helps warm a bit. And we also don't have really deep topsoil. And so it, it helps to uh, deepen the root zone. You know, we've got we've got a really nice sandy silt loam that we grow on. And but our topsoil is only about twelve inches. And then that's that topsoil is sitting on another, you know, ten or twelve inches of pure sand. And then that whole mess is sitting on pure clay. So, you know, not too far down and you're into, you know, you're into solid clay. And so by using raised beds, we really do um, turn that, you know, 11 or 12 inches of topsoil into, you know, 15, 16, maybe 18 inches.
0: Can you talk a little bit about how you, how you set up and manage those raised beds?
1: Yeah. So our main production area is organized into 10 equal size fields, lettered A to J or Afghanistan to Jamaica, <laughs> we use country names we use just for fun. And because I'm a bit of a nerd, we use agriculturally significant countries to uh, identify each of our fields. And then K is a double field. And it that, that would of course be Kenya. Um, each of these fields is 400 feet long by 65 feet wide. So they're 0. 0.65 of an acre or a quarter of a hectare. We have 10 foot roadways, grass roadways between each field and 40 foot headlands at the ends of the fields for turning tractors around. So each country or field has 12 raised beds. Our raised beds are 48 inches and then there's an 18 inch wheel track. So we're essentially, you know, 66 inches center to center. The bed tops are 36 inches and they're planted either two, three, or five rows of crop. We have a four inch buried water main. With hydrants at the head of every other road and for irrigation and the whole thing is enclosed with seven strands of high tensile electric slant deer fence which keeps out the many deer that live on the peninsula
0: yeah i guess that's the disadvantage of being next to a state park right
1: totally totally but you know we i put up that fence I don't know when, a lot of years, when we started growing in that field, I put up that fence right away and we've never had one single breach of security. And it, um, yeah, I can't say good enough, enough good things about that fence. Very economical to put up as well.
0: So you said that's a, you said it's a, a seven strand slanted electric fence, right?
1: That's right. So, you know, I got the idea. I, I'd taken a course, a workshop with Richard Wisswall a bunch of years ago And I, you know, I grabbed him at the end of the course and said, okay, you know, like, look, you think you got deer in Vermont, like I'm sitting on the doorstep of 70,000 acres of parkland, like, we got deer. And because he was, he had recommended using a little poly wire with step-ins. And he said he would, you know, enclose one acre at a time when the crop was vulnerable. And I just wasn't comfortable with, you know, a, a temporary or movable type fencing solution. So I took that principle. And, um, you know, I sunk wood posts in on 40-foot 40, inch, 40 foot centers uh, and then erected uh, seven strands of high tensile. So the corners of the fence are rounded because you need to go gradually around those corners. And each of the seven strands is uh, electrified. The top strand is only 65 inches of height. So clearly not enough to deter a deer from jumping over. But the whole 3D... Effect of the slant fence is, you know, it's like a seven foot barrier, you know, and deer can't jump both high and far at the same time. So it works.
0: It works amazingly. They've also got the eyes on the sides of their heads, which makes it so they don't have good depth perception. And so things like that are really confusing to them as well.
1: Totally. Also confusing to the many neighbors that were driving by slowly as we were putting up that fence, because it was clearly the strangest fence that had gone up (laughs) in all past lakes history. (laughs)
0: How do you manage the weeds underneath that slanted fence?
1: You know, I brush hog, I brush hog on the inside as close as I can and on the outside as close as I can. And then about twice a season, we'll send someone in there with the weed whacker, you know, and it's like, it's like half a day to go and whack weed, whack the fence line. You know, not a big deal. You know, one day of labor for one person once a year done.
0: And is that a high tensile fence or is that just regular electric wire? No,
1: it's high tensile. And, you know, we also have we also have wolves and bear and, you know, all manner of forest creatures that are roaming the farm and, and neighbor's dogs and whatnot. So it keeps out. It doesn't just keep out deer. It does keep out the bear, which would otherwise, uh, you know, find our corn and, and squash and things like that in the fall.
0: I didn't even think about that. I mean, of course, you guys have bear up there. Do you guys deal with moose, too?
1: Uh, no, no moose. Uh, it's, it's all deer right now. But, you know, these things are cyclical. The moose will you know, the, the deer will die back and the moose population will rise, but it's mostly white tailed deer.
0: So just to go back to the beds, then how are you making your raised beds? I have, uh, the LESH bed
1: former that I purchased off of market farm implement. And I selected that one, uh, because it was the most simple bed former that required the least amount of horsepower. And that might be the single best piece of equipment that I ever bought. What that, Piece of equipment did for us. It forced us to standardize our growing areas and to take a really intentional approach to laying out all of our growing spaces. And you know that's that's kind of the precursor to being able to do really good crop planning and accurate harvest prediction.
0: What kind of tractor are you using to pull the Lesh bed former?
1: We have a 2013 Case uh, Farmall 75A that we bought, um, pretty well new. And that's our heavy tractor for our, our heavy field work. And I'll, you know, I used to use my little Ferguson TE20 to do all of my farm work, but we've since upgraded. Um, so I do use, I do use the big case uh, four wheel drive tractor to to perform the bed. The The rear wheels on that tractor are 18 inches, which is exactly what our wheel tracks are. Once the beds are formed, We mechanically cultivate the bedtops with a tough built tractor. In 2014, we bought a tough built cultivating tractor, which folks may or may not have seen. It's it's, uh, a replica Alice Chalmers G. It has, um, the difference being is that it has a hydrostatic transmission and hydraulic three-point hitch mid-mount and rear. And ours runs on an 18-horse gas Kohler Engine, but they're now making them with electric version and diesel versions.
0: Why did you go out and buy a tough built instead of just searching out a G? You know, I've just finally reached a threshold with old farm
1: equipment. You know, it's quaint and it's nice and it, f- it makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside to resurrect something from someone's, you know, hedgerow. But the reality is that that stuff is worn out, generally speaking. And, you know, it's more hassle than it's worth. Uh, you know, to get a good quality G today, you know, and get it in running condition and, you know, some new weeding tools on it, you know, you're not gonna have any change, I don't think, out of, you know, three, four thousand dollars. And at this point in in my career, I'm not really interested in spending four thousand dollars on an antique piece of equipment. When I could and I could spend ten thousand dollars or even fifteen thousand dollars and have something that's brand new. And you know, as I said, the hydrostatic transmission is a huge improvement over the G and it has a little bit more clearance and it's just uh yeah it's it's just a better it, you know and i took a i took a weed management uh course at Moses conference with uh, Jeff Moyer a few years ago and at the i saw this weird looking tractor in the background of one of his slides and at the end of the work at the end of the presentation I went up to him and got him to go back in the presentation and, and zoom in on that picture and it was it was a a sockville which uh is no longer in production. And, uh, but it looks an awful lot like that, uh, tough belt that we ended up buying. And, you know, with that, then I went to the internet looking for a sock bill and then I stumbled across tough built and, and that was that.
0: And then what kind of cultivating equipment are you using on that tough build? Are you, I mean, do you have a bunch of fancy weed control equipment or is it, are you pretty basic? Yeah.
1: So sweeps and shovels, you know, uh, for now on F kinds. And this is where, you know, we've had this tractor for a few years now and we're, you know, we're starting to learn how to use it and admittedly we're not, we're not using it to its fullest potential, uh, partly because we just don't know and partly because we just don't have the tools. You know, the next step for us is to get basket weeders for those, you know, newly emerged uh, seedlings that, you know, in wet soil and it's cool spring where. We just need to, when things are growing slowly and we just need to get in right close without throwing too much soil. Um, and, you know, I, I hear a lot of your guests talk about finger weeders and how, how life-changing they are. And that's definitely on my radar. So, you know, if we were to have this conversation a year or two from now, I'd hopefully tell you that I've got a real solid arsenal of tools for that tough build. But for now, sweeps and shovels, it, uh, it's doing a pretty good job, but I know there's a lot of room for improvement. One thing I did do, I built a eight torch flame weeder for the rear of that tractor. So I bought the, uh, just the manifolds, the flame weeding manifolds from the guy who sells them on flameweeder.com or whatever. And, uh, I built, I built a, a three point hitch mounted flame weeder, uh, for that tough built tractor. And so we do pre-emergence flame weeding on our carrot and beet crops, especially with a tough built and being able to creep along at, you know, 60 feet per minute or whatever speed I want to go, uh, and just roast all those weeds is pretty satisfying. Yeah. And that's really the the biggest advantage of the Tufto, I think over, um, LSGs or the Super A farmalls or any of those, you know, those were gear transmissions. And, you know, I think that even in, you know, low gear at low throttle, sometimes it's going faster than you want. Uh, the, the hydrostatic transmission is, I don't, I'm not a big fan of hydrostatic transmissions. Um, for for most tractor applications, but for for cultivating, it, it's pretty hard to beat. I have a lot of good things to say about it.
0: In a short season like you guys have, I'm sure that transplants are a really important part of your production. How are you guys doing your transplant production?
1: Yeah, transplants are huge, and we continue to propagate. Um, you know, all the way through the month of July. Uh, Marcel, that's one of her big responsibilities on the farm she's the chief propagator and she does a great job of producing really nice transplants uh in a soil block system we transplant out by hand um we don't have a mechanical transplanter uh i've looked at it so many times that i'm you know i'm I'm done looking you know until we until we uh either specialize in one crop or another or one spacing you know a big way then there's not really a transplanter out there that will fit our needs really well and you know it's it's really not a big deal to slam in you know 1200 heads of lettuce on a 400 foot bed you know it, it really isn't i mark all those beds i dibble them with the tough built we had a custom made um row marker with dibbles on it so before any transplanting or direct seeding occurs we'll run across the bed with a tough belt and mark out the rows and dibble the holes. And then we just go off of that. You know, it's, it's not the most efficient, but it's also, it's pretty efficient for for the investment and and the time spent in that operation.
0: Okay. So one of the things that I've seen with raised beds and weed control is, you know, especially on farms where, where things are being done, you know, without a, without a guidance system for the edge of those beds, which it's, it sounds like you're kind of freehanding it. Um, with your row marker is, you know, if that row marker isn't just dead centered on the bed, then when you come along to cultivate, you know, you might be, you might be trying to stay centered on your, on your rows as you're cultivating. But if they wander a little bit to one side or the other, it's easy to have places where either you're cutting way deep into the edge of the bed or the shoulders of the bed, or where you, where your cultivators actually get entirely off of the bed. And it's one of the things that I hate about raised beds. Um, How are you guys dealing with that?
1: That's something that was an unexpected problem when we started using the tough bill. It's like,
0: no, this isn't really getting the
1: shoulders very well. Um, And so, yeah, it's something that is a bit of an issue. Uh, First thing is that our beds are really straight. Our beds, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the guy with a tape measure and all the toolboxes on all the tractors and I'm splitting hairs out there when I'm doing my field work. You know, we don't have GPS guided tractors, but we do employ SPF, which is a much more low tech uh system It's a spatial positioning system, as I like to call it, and it consists of a a wheel marker and those little fluorescent flags that you plug into the field and uh, you can get into it for about one hundred and ten bucks and that's how I do my field work when i'm when I'm either casting or gathering that first furrow, I'm always using those little flags and my wheel marker, and I get things just perfect and then as I form my beds i mean. They're, they're good they're real good now they're not perfect because nothing is um, and so and the, the tough built when it comes in on its first try the first time over the bed um, we've got the tough built wheels set so that the inside width of both the front and rear wheels on that tractor are the are they're actually squishing the shoulders of my raised bed by about an inch on either side so, you know that said, when we're straddling that row for our cultivation operation, it's basically like you're on a track, and if the if the bed bends or veers a little bit, you know it um, the the tractor doesn't it follows it. It's actually kind of like locked in there pretty well. Nice. Now the the shoulders are still a bit of an issue. Right now, we found the best thing is uh, the rear sweeps behind the wheels behind the rear wheels if you go at a good enough speed you can kind of throw soil from the wheel track up onto the side of the shoulder but this is where i think that i could really benefit from exploring you know a custom setup of finger weeders or something of the like on the on the rear to get those um shoulders
0: tell me about your your soil block setup i mean you guys i mean six acres of vegetables on soil blocks that's a lot of blocks
1: yeah it is uh we use a mini block for uh, we use 1020s, uh, so the blocks are in 1020s, and if we're trying to, pro- you know, germinate on mass, we'll use the little mini blocks, and then a lot of times we'll just transplant mini blocks straight into the field. You know, for lettuces would be a great example. Um, we do use 288 for our onion and leeks, and that's I think the only thing that we do kind of in a more conventional way, and then the rest of our soil blocks for. For our brassicas and most everything else would be not the two inch blocks, but I think they're one and
0: five eighths. And are you doing those by hand then, with just a, a floor blocker, or do you guys have a machine that's kicking them out?
1: We do them by hand. We bought the stand up model one, and then I ended up at Marcel's request cutting the handle in half and rewelding it and shortening it up so it can be used at table height. Because <laughs> the problem, as you know, with soy blocks is that they're they're really heavy, and so it's nice to be able to stand to block it out. But then you got to bend over and pick up that tray and
0: uh yeah okay that's brilliant props to marcel on that one i i i i wish somebody told me that idea in <laughs> 2001 um, hey
1: i just do what i'm told
0: <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> and then are you guys making your own mix or are you guys buying that in
1: yeah so after listening to your podcast i sure would love to bring some vermont compost uh company <laughs> blogging mix into the farm but So uh, we use OMRI listed medium that we then fortify with our own fertilizer. And then uh, we did, we went through the stage of making our own, you know, compost, you know, garden soil, you know, the Elie Coleman recipe that we tweaked, but we've since, uh, we've since just kind of gone with a, with a good mix that we then fortify.
0: And then, you know, because I know that you like your machinery are are you using any harvest aids then?
1: Uh, the only the only thing we mechanically harvest is the potatoes. You know, I have a I have a nice one row uh, McCormick Deering potato planter that helps in the beginning of the season, and then I've got like a, an international like a 1970s era uh, single row digger. Um, and then for the rest of the harvest, um, I use we've got a key Keyline plow that we use for subsoiling on the farm, as well as um, you know pasture rehabilitation and reseeding. And I will use that keyline plow to as a kind of a bed lifter for parsnips and, and storage carrots and things like that.
0: So loosen, loosen them up and then pull them out by hand.
1: That's right. And you know, as I said, we've got nice sandy loam soil. So uh, if the soil moisture is correct, a lot of times you can just pull those carrots and they're nice, big, long, straight carrots, and you don't even need to fork them at all. But uh, if, if the soil is is um you know if conditions aren't quite right then i'll you go through in the fall with a key line plow and lift everything and we can just go along and just pull carrots and pull carrots and pull carrots pull carrots until almost christmas
0: (laughs) really you guys are actually in the field until until almost christmas
1: sorry i should i should we'll be selling them till christmas uh the last two seasons we've been actually harvesting carrots up until the middle of november and you know they they are good and sweet by that point boy and um you know, and last couple of years, we, Marcel and I were, you know, our staff finished the beginning of November and we're out there slogging it out. And there's still, you know, you look out in the field and it's like, oh, there's still money there. And, you know, last year we just called it. We're like, you know what, we're done. There's a bed of carrots that we just didn't get to and whatever. But uh, that was the middle of November. And then, um, and then we will continue to market those carrots and parsnips and whatnot, uh, you know, into the new year you know, at the farmer's market until Christmas, and then we'll just maintain our wholesale accounts as deep into the new year as we can.
0: What are you using for storage on those? Do you guys have a, a walk-in cooler? Yeah, so in 2012,
1: I built a 30 by 60 foot uh, story and a half pack house, which is kind of like a multifunction building. The majority of it is our pack house uh, with a 150 square foot cooler uh it also has a garage on the back end for parking a tractor um it's got a bunkhouse upstairs for staff for living quarters as well as a staff kitchen and kind of meeting room and then on the very front of it facing the uh the farm entrance is a little a little self-serve farm store that we have a double door glass cooler and small deep freeze uh that we stock year round with eggs and meat and whatever vegetables we have so it was a, a great building. It, it was a big project for me to build from scratch. It was my first, you know, real big building project. And uh, it was probably the best investment to date on the farm.
0: Well, I'm looking at where you guys are, are located. You talk about having a, a little farm store. Is that a significant part of your business?
1: At this time of year, it is uh, not significant, but it's, uh, it's steady. And, you know, like for instance, like yesterday, you know, we brought in a hundred and 60 bucks in the farm store. And that's just like, we didn't do anything. There's just people stopping by, you know, that's, you know, that adds up over the month of you know July and August uh, because of our proximity to uh, Sleeping Giant Provincial Park. And there's lots of cottages in, in kind of in the township. There's a lot of seasonal residents. So most of that farm traffic uh, this time of year is seasonal people. But then we have our regulars throughout the whole rest of the year who come every week for their eggs and their meat and whatever. But, you know, at a time of year when we're not actually marketing and we're not at a farmer's market and the CSA hasn't started, you know, it, there it's it's, a, it's an easy sale. You know, like, for instance, right now, we're selling carrots in our farm store today that are last year's carrots that we found in our root cellar that are still good. And we bagged them up.
0: Nice. Very nice. Yeah. You said you guys have a root cellar. Is that is the root cellar part of your commercial operation or is that more of a home-based thing and you found some extra carrots in it?
1: Yeah, uh the latter, but it's uh quickly shifting to the former. So, you know, we've just we've just kind of finished construction on a new house on the farm. We've been living in an old kind of cabin, <laughs> you might say, for a lot of years since we bought the farm in 2006. And uh anyway, we've put up a new house and we were just about to move in in the next month or so. And what we're going to do with the old house is we're going to convert the whole basement which is just a block foundation into a proper root storage facility and that will enable us to pursue what we think that we really want to do which is um, strengthen our csa by going longer and deeper into the year and and kind of doing that kind of winter csa model and as as for the the house the old house that we're currently living in you know that might become living quarters for staff it might become some sort of barn we're not sure I mean, it's a, it's a real small house anyway, so there's not not a lot to be saved.
0: And then on the, on the subject of your CSA, you said you guys have a 150 member CSA uh, based, I assume in Thunder Bay, right? That's right. Well, yeah, I guess. Say, are you guys packing boxes for that CSA or are you doing something else as far as the distribution?
1: No. Um, so we got 150 members. Uh, we do one box size, uh, 90% of our members pick up in town. We do a farmers market distribution style at uh, at one drop site on Wednesdays from four to six thirty p.m. Uh, so yeah, you know you got one hundred and thirty-five people coming through there in a two and a half hour window. Uh, it's pretty busy, and then the other fifteen members or ten percent roughly pick up at the farm. Um, we use Member Assembler to manage the CSA logistics, something we've used for the last few years, and you know it's a bit pricey, but at the same time it's we feel it's still worthwhile for us, and uh because some members do decide to change the pickup location if they're you know one week they're out at out at their camp or whatever and they want to pick up at the farm that's easy for them to do and um and then we produce uh a newsletter that we call well vittled or uh you know well fed <laughs> and it's yeah it, you know our newsletter is something we take a lot of pride in, and it's uh it's intended to kind of create a window into our lives as farmers as well as the bigger picture of agriculture uh for our members. And each each issue of Well vittled features a you know, roughly a thousand word essay or article uh that talks about food or farming uh from, you know, a personal or political or sometimes philosophical point of view. It's a real highlight for our CSA members. I in fact I think a lot of our members like the newsletter more than they like the food.
0: Yeah, I, I remember finding that too with some of our members and But, I mean, it's a lot of work to put together a good newsletter, especially in the middle of the season.
1: Yeah, it is. It it takes about four or five hours of work to publish it, you know, each week. And that's one of the, you know, that's kind of fallen onto my lap uh, for the most part. And, um, you know, I enjoy doing it. But, you know, to to me, it's a real investment in the community that is our CSA membership. Like, those are our people. And they really need to understand what our lives as farmers are like to the greatest extent they're able Because in understanding our lives and understanding the vagaries and challenges and, and and realities of food production, they're going to be that much more committed to us, to us as people and us as a, as a farm business. And I think that's where our security in the future lies is within the, you know, our CSA membership, not farmer's market, not, you know, wholesale accounts, not, you know, fickle chefs, but with our, you know, down-to-earth regular everyday people that are our community.
0: Awesome. Brendan, we're going to stop there, take a break, get a word from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Brendan Grant from Sleepy G Farm, just east of Thunder Bay, Ontario, on the North Shore of Lake Superior. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Store it Cold's CoolBot. Way back in 2000, the year I started Rock Spring Farm, The manager of the local food co-op complained that the lettuce from local producers lasted for days in her cooler, while the lettuce from California lasted for weeks. So what was all that about 2,000 miles fresher? I later found out that none of the local growers had a walk-in cooler. 17 years later, this is still the number one complaint I hear from produce buyers. You have to get your produce cold. The difference between now and then is there's CoolBot. You can build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a CoolBot and a window air conditioning unit saving up to 83% in upfront costs and up to 42% on monthly electrical bills compared to conventional cooling units. Use the code FTF at checkout to double your CoolBot warranty at no charge. StoreItCold.com. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company. When you talk to Carl Homer, the company founder, he'll remind you that potting soil is a set of promises about a product that has to do a really hard job, produce a healthy plant, In a restricted media volume. When I started farming, I focused on the cheapest ingredients I could get so that I could make my own potting soil. But as my farm grew and as I saw the challenges we were having getting great plants out of the greenhouse, I gave it a second look and I came to what in retrospect seems like a fairly obvious conclusion that success in the greenhouse depends on the success of the plants that are growing there. And that just like the rest of farming, that success rests on the stuff that the plant is growing in. The cost of your potting soil isn't insignificant, but it's a small cost relative to the plant material, the heat and the labor that you're going to put into producing your transplants. And if the media fails, the rest of that enterprise is a sunk cost. So get media that works year after year after year and grow some great transplants. VermontCompost.com. And we're back with Brendan Grant from Sleepy G Farm, uh, just east of Thunder Bay, Ontario, on the North Shore of Lake Superior. One of my, I mean, Thunder Bay, Ontario, I just, I've, I've I mean, I, I don't know. I, I've, I've been there a couple of times and I'm, I'm really attracted That area. And, you know, it's, but it's, you know, it is a, it's a, it's a, it's not a big town. And, and I'm kind of curious how the, how the marketing has gone there because, you know, it's, it's also not a, I mean, it's clear there's some cool things going on there, but it's also clear that it's, you know, it's not an upper class community. It's not like, you know, it's not like Rochester, Minnesota, where you have a city full of doctors. It's a, it's a pretty working class town. That's
1: true. But, you know, one thing that doctors and mill workers all have in common is that, you know, they eat every day, hopefully three times a day. And, and and because of that, everyone is interested in food. Everyone wants good quality food. And, you know, food's not a big part of everyone's life. But uh, there's enough people year after year, I think, that are moving towards that. I, I look at RCSA membership and, you know, some of the people in there, you're surprised when they sign back up the next year because you know, they're not foodies and you know that a lot of times they don't even really know how to cook because they're asking you questions like, you know, well, what's this? Well, that's a yellow zucchini. How do you cook it? That's like a green zucchini, <laughs> you know, but they like the CSA. They like the freshness of the food. And I don't think that that's I uh, I don't think that's a fad. I think that's just the trend. And, you know, you know, our focus on our farm is our CSA. Um, more so than just growing for the general public and i think that's where we're continuing to to go in the future and people aren't going to stop eating and if you can keep if you can give them food that is well priced and is you know good flavored and comes with a face and a story you know if it's not that much more than the grocery store if it's the same price why wouldn't you you know I, i and i think that I think that's true of all towns and small cities in North America or anywhere. People are going to eat and if you if you're not if you're not overtly letting them down then they're kind of your customer to lose.
0: And do you find that you actually have some advantages because of the isolation of Thunder Bay? You know, when I lived in Maine, we were like at the we were at the very end of the produce distribution chain. You know, stuff had to go you know if it was coming right. from california or arizona or 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 Southern Ontario, it was going through a big city and then it was going to Portland, maine, and then it was coming to us and by the time it got to us, it was pretty tired you know and it made it made it having you know we had fresh food and that made for a pretty mark pretty easy marketing pitch
1: right and you know Thunder Bay so a couple of things we got going for us one is what I mentioned earlier is this kind of fierce pride of the region because we are kind of on this island in the bush together, but, you know, food travels a really long way to Thunder Bay, you know, in in the same kind of example you just gave. And because of that, you know, the the cost of food at our grocery stores is higher in Thunder Bay than say other areas of Ontario, you know, in Southern Ontario where bigger population and bigger city centers. And, um, so that said, if the price of, you know, green beans, for instance, at the grocery store is $3 a pound, and you know the farmer is bringing peas or beans to the farmer's market at three or even four dollars a pound. You know if it's about the same price, you're gonna get that sale based solely on the fact that you know those beans don't look like they're in a bar fight last night, which they do when they're in the grocery store and they've come that long way so you know we're definitely have the advantage of already people in our community are used to paying a higher price for their food, so us as small scale producers. Uh, which, you know, we're able to compete a little bit better. You know, at 10 years ago, when we started with the farm, there was a big gap between, you know, the grocery store food and then what we are producing. And today, honestly, Chris, um, a lot of our stuff is, you know, marginally more expensive. You know, we're talking 10% more or sometimes even less. So, um, yeah, that's an advantage to
0: us. Now you said, just, I mean, just talking about prices, just to shift into economics a little bit, you said that you and Marcel both used to work off the farm and, and now you're full, both full-time on the farm.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, I, we both used to work for the provincial government. I worked uh, at a tourism site in, in Thunder Bay. I ran, uh, uh, I ran the farm at a, a, at a fur trade post an old will recreated fur trade post. And I, I worked that job for almost five years. And that was you know a regular person's job with pension and benefits and all those types of things, and at the same time, Marcel worked at Sleeping Giant Park, which is part of the Ontario park system and you know she works seasonally um and as did I. I worked ten months a year and she had a six month a year contract and you know those are good jobs those are jobs that we could potentially retire in, but you know for me at least i was I didn't have to take a take a step away from farming to You know, to build my farm dream, I was still farming, kind of, (laughs) in the year eighteen (laughs) fifteen, at a historic (laughs) fur trade post. But at the same time, you know, my my learning curve was still rising, as it always is, and uh, I was engaged in my work. But we got to the point where it was just too hectic. You know, both working off the farm. You know, I was driving two hours a day to go to that job, and um, you know, we in fact ran our CSA for the first two seasons. Uh, while both working off the farm. And because we both worked in tourism, our weekends were Wednesday and Thursday. And it just so happened that there's a Wednesday farmer's market in Thunder Bay, so that became our CSA day. (laughs) And we would drop off our CSA boxes and market at the same time. And then Thursday was our day off, also known as our day to do everything, like weeding and making hay and (laughs) everything else. So it it got too hectic, so I quit my job first. And then a couple of years later, Marcel quit her job. And uh, it's been a few years since she's been at her job. And, um, yeah.
0: And you guys are making a living on the farm. Yeah,
1: we are. Yeah. We're, you know, we're making it happen. Uh, you know, I think that I always feel like things are tenuous that, you know, it could all come apart at any time, but you know, one of your guests recently said something about, you know, if your planning is working and it's proven to work, then take the leap and just trust that it's going to keep on working. And I, th- I think there's some wisdom to, th- to those sentiments.
0: Okay. So speaking of feeling like things are going to fall apart at any time, um, I happen to know that you had a pretty serious accident two years ago.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, actually, it was just two years ago, a few days ago. And uh, it was July 5th and uh, July 5th, 2015. And I, I took a fall from the top of our cow barn which is a 35 foot tall building and i fell and and broke both of my heels and uh, didn't walk for four months and then when i did start walking it was you know with walking casts and um it was a, a lot of months before i was you know moving and getting stuff done and yeah that that was a really difficult season for us and it continues to be a bit difficult in that I'm still recovering and, you know, I still have pain and I'm not, not you know, I got a bit of a limp and, you know, days are tough on my feet for me. Um, you know, things are continuing to improve, but uh, that, was, uh, that was a pretty scary time for us.
0: So I know that you and Marcel have, have been involved in the volunteer fire department there. I, I mean, I assumed you guys are have a, a pretty strong safety focus on your farm. Can you talk a little bit about what happened?
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. You know, I mean, that, that's been part of, part of my, um, coming to terms with my accident has been,
0: you
1: know, how did I let that happen? You know? Um, and you know, this is a good lesson I think for all of us farmers who tend to go a hundred miles an hour for a good portion of the year, you know, the, the day I, the day of my accident, um, I, it was a Sunday evening and I had come into the house at around 6 p.m. and I I said to Marcel I said I am absolutely exhausted. I am mentally and physically exhausted. We have been going 100 miles an hour since April and I need a break. And she concurred that you know we we had been run ragged and and we together we said, "You know what? Let's take next Sunday off." But for now uh tonight I need to go back up onto the barn roof to finish the job I had started early in the week, which was replacing the ridge cap on, you know, the steel ridge cap on the cow barn. And so I took a quick power nap. I set the the uh, alarm on my phone for 20 minutes and I fell asleep, uh, sitting up like full dreaming sleep in that 20 minute span. And the timer went off and I popped out of that chair and I walked out the house and I walked to the pack house and I I grabbed a handful of gummy bears or whatever was in there. And I started stumbling across the yard, putting on my climbing harness. And, you know, I put on my harness and I got up onto the barn roof and I clipped in and, you know, 45 minutes later, there's a helicopter landing in my behind my barn. And it's. It was, you know, another five months before I could walk properly. So, you know, what had happened, I, you know, I, I would unclipped my rope to, you know, grab something. And, you know, I was groggy and I was overtired and my head wasn't in the game and I was doing something I shouldn't have been doing with that level of risk at that time. And it was, you know, a function of, you know, what we always do. You We all fall into our routines of our old habits, which is go, 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 you know. And um, yeah, so it was a tough lesson. You know, the silver lining is that I didn't break my brain or my back or you know i didn't get dead which could have very easily happened and uh, instead you know i got off real easy and that you know i will recover maybe not 100 percent, but i will recover and i can continue to farm so yeah lesson learned there i think uh lots of lessons and there's of course lots of personal growth that came from laying in bed for the rest of that year that season and, and watching everyone around me works their butts off to compensate for my my lack of ability to to work alongside them. But, you know, I think that, I think that uh, sometimes you got to know when to say enough is enough and to not, you know, to know when to take a break and to recognize that, you know, when you get tired either mentally or physically, then that's when bad things are likely to happen.
0: So how did you guys deal with this as a farm? I mean, you're, you know, you're a major part of the labor force on the farm and, and you are a, it's been obvious from the times that I've talked to you in person and, and the conversations that we've had on the phone previously, you're a, you're a hard worker and you really identify strongly with your ability to do that physical work. How did, so how did you handle that personally? And how did you guys handle that as a farm?
1: Yeah. You know, like, um, well, the accident happened three days before the the first CSA delivery and you know, you know. I, of course, I spent a number of days in the hospital. In fact, I wrote the first CSA newsletter from my hospital bed. Um, you know, perfectly cheerful, like nothing had happened, because you know you don't want to you don't want to break the news to your membership that you know a key key player just went down. Uh, you know, after they antied up and for the CSA season, and so, um, you know, and Marcel uh, she executed that first CSA delivery. Perfectly with uh with the help of the great staff we had that year. And um, you know, I think the real the real thing that we had done that that helped us through was that we had good equipment that worked. We had a brand new track we had a couple of brand new tractors, uh that you know, even an, an experienced person might stumble with them a bit, but I know that the tractor's not gonna fail. Like it's gonna work. Uh, We had been, you know, farming long enough at that point that we had really clear systems and processes for everything that we do on the farm, from bunching kale to, you know, watering the greenhouse. And so, you know, we had those processes in place and um, we we were able to, because of that, we were able to take on a lot of volunteers, um, you know, random community members and friends you know, you can imagine the t- type of people that come out of the woodwork in those times. And and we were able to take those people on and put them to good use, which we normally don't take on a lot of volunteers because, you know, as a lot of your listeners know, it's a lot of work to, to manage someone who doesn't really know what they're doing. You know, and, you know, I thought that before the accident, I thought that I was like indispensable, like I was the most important person on the farm and that, you know, if, if the captain, you know, the captain of the ship kind of was asleep at the wheel that the ship would go down. And, you know, that didn't happen. And, you know, it was really humbling to see that, that it didn't happen, but it was also really relieving to realize, you know, that it didn't happen. And, uh, it really took a little bit of a load off me. I thought, okay, well, you know, not only is Marcel more than capable of running this farm, but you know, we as a couple, we as a business are able to withstand, um, something as, as, drastic and tragic as this.
0: And did you guys make changes in how your operation worked as a result of your accident? Have you adjusted your schedule or? Well, you know,
1: I, I, um, that season I did all the administration and emailing and, um, newsletter and all the stuff that I could do from my bed with two casts on my legs. Um, after 50 days from the accident, that was my return to work date. And you know, that looks like me, crawling around in the fields with two, two fiberglass casts on and crawling uh, through the fields, harvesting where I could. I had one of those electric scooters that you often see people around town zipping around in. Um, and uh, I could get around the farm on my electric scooter and then I could lower myself down uh, to the ground. Cause I was no, no weight, non-weight bearing on both feet. So it was really difficult to, you couldn't limp or use crutches or anything like that. So I would literally crawl everywhere. And you know, I'd work in the pack house from my scooter and I could wash stuff, but then someone would have to put it in the walk in cooler. And you know, I was only working at about a third or a quarter of my regular regular Brendan type capacity. But you know, it made me feel good. It it kept me engaged and um, you know, I was pitching in just like everyone else. Um yeah, it was it was tough. It was tough. And you know, last season we started our season on on a different uh, different footing better footing uh you know we made zero put changes to our crop plan from 2015 to 2016 it was kind of like a retake let's try this again this time with you know all hands on deck and um but you know last spring i had uh, i I was still recovering and I had to go a hundred miles an hour to try and catch up on, you know, all of my equipment that had gotten broken in that year that I wasn't able to run it or maintain it. And, you know, last year was a real struggle for me. Um, also physically, you know, could be on my feet until about one o'clock each day before my feet really started to hurt. Um, yeah. But, you know, things are a lot better this year. And I, I think that next year it'll be even better, but you know, I I had I did struggle especially last year like after the accident you know I, I kind of lost my mojo you know like I I was just you know I just I just couldn't get engaged in the farm the way I I used to be and you know part of that was not really knowing my place anymore you know like I wasn't I, I kind of felt a little bit uh, irrelevant or you know I just didn't know where I fit in and so that was that was. Um, that was tricky. And, they were, you know, for the first time in my life, I experienced a little bit of depression, you know, it's like, you know, I'm feeling sad and grief and I'm feeling worried for the future. And yeah, last season was tough for me. And, um, but things, as I said, things are a lot better now. And as a result of my injury, uh, the jobs that Marcel and I do on the farm are now a lot better defined. And I think that we're on a better path as managers. So. You know, as an example, like, as you mentioned, Marcel and I are both on the fire department in Pass Lake. And at a fire, everything that happens, happens on one of three levels. The task level, the tactical level, or the strategic level. And so, you know, the fire chief is the one who's working on the strategic level, figuring out, you know, what's going to happen, you know, what we're going to do. The officers, the captains are working on the tactical level figuring out how we're going to do that. And then the firefighters are the ones who are actually doing the, the actual task. And so now on the farm, like I find myself, um, I work mostly in the tactical level, you know, I am doing the field work and the bed prep and setting up and making sure the crews got the tools to do the job. And then I move on ahead of them and leave them behind to accomplish that. And, um, you know, I'm kind of the one step ahead type guy, um, whereas Marcel, she's working more on the strategic level, you know, the bigger picture and because we have a high turnover of staff every year, she's also working on the, the task level as kind of the, the field supervisor and crew leader. But, you know, our, our jobs are a bit better defined now. And I, I think that's actually a good thing.
0: Has the, has your injury and, and not being able to operate at hundred percent physically forced you to change how you do that tactical level of work?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, if I'm pushing myself real hard and I'm on my feet on an uneven ground, uh, f- you know, for a long day, then I'm happy to get on the track to the next day and, you know, take a little bit of a load off. Um, but I think more than anything, it's just, I just don't push as hard as I used to because you know what, like, it's not worth it. You know, like we all believe strong in what we're doing and, you know, we're really passionate about it, but it's not worth dying for. And, uh, you know, sometimes Sometimes it's it's okay to just say, you know what? I'm going to take the night off or I'm going to take the weekend off or you know what? One more rainstorm on this old barn without the ridge cap protecting its roof isn't going to be the demise of this old barn, you know? So I, I think that I'm learning to be I'm learning to uh, have a little bit better perspective on life. Now I have to say to qualify that though, that it's because marcel and i have always kind of pushed the limits of what's humanly possible you know um it that's kind of that work ethic i really think got us the equipment and the infrastructure and the processes in place on the farm that kept us afloat when when i went down so i don't think that i think that if, if i took a more cavalier approach from the beginning to my work then we would have been in a lot worse shape when i did go down but because we we're so hardcore for so long, you kind of put us in a position where, okay, you know, a farm can take, the farm can float and the farm can take care of itself here.
0: And get some, so I think it's one of the things that's really important to recognize, I think, is, a, you know, in, in the different seasons of the farm, right? I mean, in the beginning of a farm, you know, so much of what you're doing is is sweat equity and you can't pay for labor with sweat equity. You can't pay for tractors with sweat equity. You got to put that in to start to get the momentum to be able to get the tractors and get the workers and then kind of how you shift from that but also you know how you stay safe in that time when when it is sweat equity and that that every extra hour is really an hour of investment in your farm and it it does make a di- a big difference down the road kind of to the point where you guys get you to the point where you are now where you can you know you can you really do have the ability to step back from that a little bit
1: Absolutely you know, there, there were lots and lots of days and years where, you know, we'd come home from work, from our off-farm jobs, you know, we'd put on a clean or a dirty shirt, rather, take off the clean one, head out to the field. And, you know, we'd come in, um, you know, six hours later, we put in pretty well full day's work with headlamps on, you know, weeding with headlamps, you know, that was common. That's what we did. That's how we made it happen. That's how we ran the CSA while we both worked off-farm for the first couple of years. and you know i don't regret it i definitely don't regret it it's character building and it's uh and i think it was necess- necessary but i also wouldn't do it again now but you know i'm older now and you know and i'm not as you know i'm getting tired man
0: <laughs> it happens I still got lots
1: in me but i'm get- i still got lots in me but you know i got a little less in me <laughs> so do you and marcel have kids we don't you know not we've been been really We focused on uh, building the farm and having calves and other things, but no kids so far.
0: Which actually, I mean, you know, it's, I'm going to make a funny transition from kids to calves, but you know, both being additional enterprises on the farm, really, how do you guys integrate the management of livestock with the management of, of the vegetables? You know, we actually just heard from, from Ray Tyler down at Rose Creek farms saying, you know, he, he. Hasn't seen very many good examples of people doing a successful job of managing vegetables and a successful job of managing livestock on the same farm. How are you guys pulling that off?
1: Yeah, it's really difficult, and there's a really good reason why you don't see a lot of market farms also have livestock in a big way. And certainly, a lot of times they're you know bringing in feed rather than making their own. There's good reason for that. It's it's really challenging. Um, So, for one thing, we. I breed all of our cows with artificial insemination. Um, and so I breed in, you know, the winter months. So starting in February, March, April is kind of my breeding season, which means that we then calve, uh, you know, November, December, January ish, you know, so basically once the CSA wraps up, then we start calving. And because we bought an old Dairy farm. We've got an, a nice little tie stall cow barn that we you know, we tie stall our cows in the winter months uh, in the barn. You know they're in at night and then they're outside during the day and then and it, it's great because we get to spend time with the animals that we love. Um, but most importantly, we're able to capture all that poop, which then goes to the barn cleaner out to the compost pile, and you know then I compost it quite vigorously and you know over 24 months. Uh, before it gets to uh, gets to the vegetable field, you know, and with that system, we're able to generate about 30 ton of well aged, you know, 24 month old compost through that system. And you know, because of our geography being in the middle of nowhere and having no other infrastructure, you know, um, organic infrastructure, I, I feel like that's our best, you know, that's fertility input. I mean, that seems like the only way to go for us. Um, and, you know, I often joke that we're vegetable farmers in the summer and we're poop farmers in the winter. And, uh, yeah, so it's a bit of a juggling act. Um, you know, making hay is a big deal. Uh, we've got a lot of money and equipment, tied up in equipment for doing that. And, you know, starting in another week or so, I'll be kind of on the hay train for the next foreseeable several weeks to try and put away enough feed to feed those cows in the winter. Yeah. It's a challenge, Chris. I don't, um, we do it cause we believe in it. it seems, it seems for us to be the, the only way that we can feed our soil in the way we think we ought to. I mean, we do buy in some other, um, input, uh, like alfalfa pellets is one we've been using a lot lately. But, um, you know, as an example, you know, we bought, we bought alfalfa pellets this year, certified organic pellets, and they were $400 a ton. But the shipping on each time was like 330, you know, so. Right. Fertility is a big deal. I don't I don't see us being able to economically import it. And unfortunately, our farm isn't big enough that I could put 50 percent of my land in you know, plow down or green manure each year and, and rotate back and forth. I would love to do that. I can't. I, I can put in about a third into a green manure and then another third of the the fields will get uh that that nice compost and then the other third will either get um those alfalfa pellets or something similar or it'll just you'll get nothing and that'll be the the residual we'll just ride the residual fertility for that next crop
0: brendan i think this is a good spot for us to pivot and go to the lightning round i've got to get a word from one more sponsor and then we'll be right back this lightning round and perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by BCS America. A BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need with PTO-driven attachments like a rototiller, a flail mower, power harrow, rotary plow, snow thrower, log splitter, and more. You name it, you can probably run it with a ber- versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor and it's. supported... Spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four wheel farm tractors, and it has many of the same features. I've used other tillers and mowers, and I spent most of the time that I was using them thinking about how much easier it would have been with a BCS. Check out BCSamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments, plus videos of BCS in action. Videos are pretty cool. Brendan, what's your favorite tool on the farm?
1: Uh, We have an irrigation traveler, and a hose reel. It's a Cadman 1500. And, uh, that thing is, uh, watching that thing, irrigate our crops is, it's just a wonder to me. I love it.
0: It's so awesome. So tell me about how those hose reels work. So
1: the way they work, it's a, basically a, uh, a coil of pipe that's wound up on a drum and it's attached to a cart. And, uh, I use an ATV or a a small tractor to spool out the, the reel and you you spool it out on the one end. It's got a sprinkler, you know, like a, just a impulse sprinkler on a, um, on wheels. And for us, that sprinkler runs along our roadways, our harvest roadways between each of our fields. And we've got 400 foot fields. And so I spool this thing out, you know, 400 feet and then at the back, at the at the other end, we plug in the water, and we've got a four-inch water main to feed the uh, the reel, and it sprink it, it sprinkles uh, you know irrigates um, both directions in a circle, or you can move the stops and just do one side or the other, and it retrieves or, or coils itself back up under its own power. Um, and you can you can adjust that quite finely, how quickly it retrieves. So between the retrieval rate and the nozzle that you use, you can put down a pretty precise amount of water.
0: Did you size your equipment to fit the 400 foot beds or did you size the beds to fit a 400 foot hose reel?
1: I sized the equipment to what I had because that came years after I'd established my growing space. But I think the one thing I had the foresight to do was to really think through our growing space it's all very modular it's all very uh there's a lot of symmetry you know every there's no 200 foot beds they're all 400 and you know our roadways are the same it was it was an easy it was easy to add a really you know slick irrigation system in in that setup um and you know we we've gone through the evolution of using lots of drip tape on the farm and and then also swearing a lot while using said drip tape. <laughs> and now we, we only use drip tape where it's absolutely necessary. And that's under, you know, some sort of mulch or in our hoop houses. But, you know, overhead sprinkler for everything else. Um, you know, and overhead has got its downsides. But, boy, you know, to be able to put that much water that quickly on, on crops when they need it is the real the real big upside. You know, because one thing I've learned is that there's there's a big difference between you know, watering your crops to see your plants survive and watering your crops to see them thrive.
0: So talk about that a little bit. How do you decide how much water you're going to put down on a given crop?
1: Yeah. So, you know, we, of course, we're on those raised beds, which dry out more quickly, you know, so we do have to irrigate. If it's hot, out, we need to be irrigating each crop, you know, maybe a couple of times a week, even. Um, I like I like to go down to like my wrist, I dig down and it should be sufficiently moist, not soggy, but you know, good and damp, right up to about my wrist. And so that that you know, that's your main part of your rooting zone. And if it's not good and moist, then that's when we bring out the the irrigation reel and we make sure that it gets good and moist. And it's also been really great to be able to give crops like potatoes, for instance, Water when you need to give them water. When they're flowering, hammer the water to them. It makes it makes all the difference. Um, you know, if you're trying to keep up on your successions of your carrots and beets and lettuce and everything else, you know, it's one thing to put the seed in the ground on the date you had hoped, but if it sits there and doesn't do anything because no water comes for five or 15 days, you know, that throws that whole plant off. So to be able to put the seed in the ground and then make sure it gets water right away, we're getting more consistent results with our germination keeping us on track better with our cropping plan.
0: We haven't talked a whole lot about, about your, your wife and your, and farming partner, Marcel. We, we, we talked a little bit about her role on the farm, but what's Marcel's farming superpower? (laughs) Marcel's
1: farming superpower. uh, Well, she carries her clipboard around with her religiously, her clippy, even to bed. She's still organizing the next day's work. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, she's extremely organized and that's, you know, and me being a man and being who I am, I'm not that. And so uh, I love that about her. But I think in terms of an actual superpower, she's she's got a real good sense of seeing things for what they are, whether that's, you know, personal interactions or she can look at a plant and see its stress when the rest of us would not even notice you know, she's just got a really innate ability to see things for what they are in a real unbiased, noble kind of way. And because of that, she's an awesome farmer because she just has an intuition about with plants and with animals that, you know, the rest of us really wish we had. So I think that that's a big one. I love her for it. I love her for lots of reasons, but that's a big
0: one. And what's your favorite crop to grow? Me,
1: uh, you know, celery, without question. I love celery. We grow a lot of carrots. Carrots are number one crop. We grow over an acre of carrots. But celery is where it's at for me.
0: What about celery? Because that's that's a weird one, Brandon.
1: You're not calling me weird, are you? I'm not calling you (laughs) weird. I'm calling
0: your choice of a favorite crop weird. There's a difference.
1: Okay, so think about it. Celery, it's a tough crop to grow. I mean just to get that stuff to germinate consistently is is like the first feat. Uh, And then, you know, it's a needy crop. It needs lots of food. It needs lots of water. You know, it's also quite vulnerable to a lot of pests. It's just, it's a really challenging crop. And when you nail it and you end up with those huge, big um, celery stalks that are crispy and crunchy and they're not stringy and they're sweet, like sweet, sweet that you don't get in, you know, industrial, industrially growing celery. I mean, it, it's life-changing for people who are really into food in the same way that, you know, we've all had those customers come up to us and say, you know, wow, your carrots are so awesome. I just can't eat store-bought carrots anymore. You've spoiled me for life. I get the same kind of comments about celery and there's that is the difference between good organically grown celery and the other stuff, it, It's it's stark. And every time I pull off a celery crop, That are, you know, that's of that quality. I'm just so proud of my, I'm the only one at the market who notices. I should, I should say that (laughs) because no one else, you know, and I'm, I'm standing there behind the table and I'm just beaming with pride and, and for what I'm able to accomplish and no one cares. This is, this is strictly for me. So, but celery also is a potentially very lucrative crop. We put a lot into it. We, we grow our celery, uh, with lots of compost and alfalfa pellets. We put it on that paper mulch I talked about so it never dries out. We use quick hoops uh, and then we hoop it off with row cover and we pin it down and we walk away and we make sure that we irrigate it. But, and we come back, you know, in September when it's ready. So we put a lot of uh, labor and expense up front. But when we go to harvest, you know, all of our beds are 400 feet. We put three rows of celery on that bed. So that's 1,200 plants on a 400 foot bed. You know, at worst, if it's a salvage mission, you're going to be cutting, you know, four celery plants to the bunch them together for a stock and sell for four bucks, you know? So that's a $1,200 bed. At best, though, each of those plants grows to be a $4 plant. And now we're talking about a $4,800 400-foot bed. Nice. Which I did the math on last night is $96,000 an acre. So
0: not bad. That's pretty good. Not bad.
1: All right. Who needs microgreens when you've got celery? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The problem, of course, is that there's only so much of it you can sell, so you know that's the, that's the trick and you know I, I want to learn how to be able to hold celery over into the fall to to feed into a winter CSA down the road. I, I know that I know it's possible to, to to hold it for several weeks, if not you know approaching two months, but you know I just don't exactly know how to make that happen at this point.
0: Finally, Brendan, if you could go back in time, tell your beginning farmer self one thing. What would it be?
1: I'd tell myself to think bigger. You know, I didn't scale the farm appropriately from the beginning. I had too narrow, I was thinking 5 acres, 100 member CSA, $50,000 gross sales. There's my life, which is a joke. I mean, 50000 gross sales is not going to cut it um for us and for the overhead and what we're doing. Um and I you know, I think that i would say don't limit yourself to some arbitrary number but rather define that number by what your financial needs are which by the way is a lot more than you might think you know and to that end you know i would also say borrow money if you're able and you know i know lots of people are phobic of taking on debt um, for me i look at it this way you know there's very few of us in this world that are privileged enough to be able to take on a mortgage or a loan, you know that's a, that's a privilege. That's you know, and why not exercise that privilege to leverage, uh, you know, leverage that privilege uh, to to help you acquire the equipment needed to make more money off the farm more quickly and put yourself into a better position for the future. So those would be my sage words of wisdom to my former self.
0: Awesome. Brendan, thank you so much for being on the podcast today.
1: Thanks Chris. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. And you know, I'm awfully flattered that you uh, you invited me. So thanks very much.
0: All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 127 of the farmer to farmer podcast, and that you can find the notes for the show at farmer to farmer by looking on the episodes page or just searching for grant that's G R A N T. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America, and by Rock Dust Local, the first company in North America specializing in local sourcing and delivery of the best rock dust and biochar for organic farming. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review if you enjoy the show. That makes a big difference in our visibility and how many other people are able to find out about the Farmer to Farmer podcast. You can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I am working to make the best farming podcast in the world and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmer and I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be really safe out there. and Keep the tractor running.